Hello, and welcome to Smart Pill, a podcast where each episode delivers concentrated knowledge on one specific topic. This podcast is brought to you by the WHRO Emerging Leaders Board, a diverse group of young professionals who are passionate about bringing public media to the millennial generation. I'm your host, Nisha Witt, and you're listening to our Women Veterans series. In this episode, we're taking a deeper look into the experiences of women in the military. Women have been serving since 1775, but it wasn't official until 1948. Over the years, how has the military climate changed for women? I think that men realized that things were, were changing for the better, and having women be more active in the workforce didn't undermine their masculinity. How can we measure the impact that women have had on the armed forces? Uh, certainly, we, we now have our first memorial in Arlington, Women in Military Service, and that, I think, has gone a long way to give us visibility. What are some ways that you can support the veteran community and get involved? And there's several places where you can go for free. We'll be covering all of this and more. So sit back and relax because it's time to take your smart pill. So today we have here is Renetta Van. Thank you for being here with us. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you for having me today. You're welcome. Thank you for being with us. What did you do and when did you join the military? I joined the Navy in 1979. I joined because it was the greatest challenge I could envision. We were in a uh, de- depression, recession at the time, and I had finished uh, Allegheny College, four-year degree in English literature. There were no jobs. When I came in, in 1979, we were offered traditional support roles. We weren't allowed uh, into the warfare communities. They weren't fully opened. And gradually, when they admitted women, I was really too senior to take advantage of those openings. So I my first tour, I was administrative officer for Naval Station Guam, public affairs officer, voting officer, 32 collateral duties. Uh, the second tour, I was at a squadron in San Diego, and I was stashed for a year, which was a big surprise and very disappointing. If you're used to working hard, it's hard not to have a job. Mm-hmm. And so I started my graduate degree while I was sitting at the desk, then I was put in, into material control, but I had already requested transferring to the computer science field. With Admiral Grace Hopper as my role model, I thought that would be a good uh, place to get my foot in. It was a wide open field, and, and it was exciting to be in the computer field. Nice. What were your expectations when you joined the Navy, and did the Navy meet your expectations? Now, that's a challenging question. Um, I'm not speaking for all women or all women in the early 80s. I'm speaking for myself. When I joined, I wanted to uh, to go and explore the world. The Navy let me explore the world. I asked for San Diego. They sent me to Guam. So I really stretched for that tour. They uh, were not very interested in training me. So I would be put in positions where I would have to perform without training, whereas my male counterparts did get the training. And I pushed hard with my jobs, and I did the best I could. We didn't have the internet, so I talked to people to learn what I could about 
about the jobs. One job was to redecorate the Admiral's housing. Another job was to do a traffic survey of Guam. So during that time frame, um, especially during the 60s and 70s for women, because that was sort of the, the beginning of the women's revolution, and knowing that you had joined, there was only 3% women in the Navy. How did you feel that you sort of contributed to the women's revolution without being actively involved? Well, that's another great question. I felt just by doing my job the best that I could, keeping my nose down and doing my work was my major contribution. By definition, I served as a mentor to the junior junior sailors, junior officers, and I tried to uh, protect them as well. When I was at my third command, uh, there were other female lieutenants, and the treatment there was a little unusual and so I spoke up about it and got uh, we had some interesting dialogues about women in the military Mm -hmm. and the progression Uh, one way I saw was there was a certain elite class that senior officers uh, were invited to and from that the admirals were selected Mm -hmm. and I noticed that there were never any women Mm. Women didn't know about it. Women didn't receive the message traffic. They didn't receive the, e- well, there weren't emails back then. They never got the memo, so they couldn't apply. So I wrote an article about that, put it in the newspaper, and sure enough, the next year, women started applying. I felt by serving in a non-traditional role that I was breaking new ground. And I was excited to see all the changes that happened at uh, different conferences that I went to, uh, like the Athena conference, uh, in 2016 at the at Annapolis, where there are over three or 400 female officers there, and they had no idea of the challenges that we faced. And that's often the way it is mm-hmm. with big changes. They couldn't understand why some of us were looking rather haggard, because they came in the military with these opportunities offered for them. I'm glad it's that way. I'm glad they came in fresh. During that time frame, because I know you were above or leading junior sailors, did you ever feel that you had to prove yourself to your male counterparts that you're not, you know, some radical feminist or, you know, it's the typical stay-at-home mom that stays at cooks and cleans? Like, how did you balance that persona in the military? A sense of humor goes a long way. Uh, There were a lot of positions I was put in, and I hope I eased out of it gracefully. I'm not sure I did. For instance, on Guam, it's very humid, 100% humidity, and numerous men would ask me, why aren't you wearing makeup? And I said, well, if I wore makeup, it would just melt off me. (laughs) And finally, I lost my temper one day, and I said, I'll wear makeup when you wear makeup. Mm -hmm. Because it was just a, we were working so hard, that it just didn't make a lot of a lot of sense, and balancing when I was single and then when I was married and had children, it meant I didn't sleep a lot. <laughs> That's how I balanced it. <laughs> I just pulled some all-nighters here and there. Uh, I think every day I put the uniform on. I felt very proud of wearing the uniform, oh, like a superwoman before even superwoman, and I felt like I could do things 
do mm-hmm. more things because I was in the uniform. Yeah, I definitely understand the whole no sleep concept and, and working hard because it is hard to sort of have to prove yourself and earn your spot in the military in the ranks because of your gender, which is unfortunate for a lot of women um, that do love that what they do. So right now, the hot topic in Hollywood and in politics is sexual misconduct and harassment. And knowing that a lot of women are facing that on a daily basis in uniform, it's very disturbing and it's troubling. It is actually one of the things that the Navy and the military is sort of acknowledging and they're taking actions and steps towards. And based on your experience from the story that you shared at the event Cloaked in Invisibility, can you sort of walk us through the climate of what it was like for women 40 years ago? I retired uh, in 2016. And at my retirement, it was very unusual because I had an enlisted man speak at my retirement ceremony. He told a story that I had no idea had happened. Before I arrived at Naval Station Guam in 1979, the command decided that I was going to fail. And the word was put out, whatever Anson Van does, don't support her. Block her any way you can. I didn't realize that when I was there. I just kept my head down and pushed forward. And realized pretty quickly, though, socially, there was that triad. You know, either I was a a loose woman, or I was gay, or I was a social reprobate. And so I just kept my head down and worked harder and harder. The were so few women there that there was no one, there was no critical mass like they have now. There was no idea, no one to talk to. I do remember going to the chaplain and the chaplain suggested I have an affair with him. So there were a lot of things that happened to me that I thought I was on Candid Camera, if you remember that show from a long time ago. Yeah. I kept looking for the cameras. Okay, this isn't happening. This is really funny mm-hmm. uh, because the men, I thought, were often so outrageous that I just had to laugh. And since 1979 to the year that you retired, could you say that it got better, worse, or did it the climate stay neutral? I think the climate improved. There were more women recruited. There were more men who saw that their spouses were working and actively engaged uh, in the political arena as well. I think that men realized that things were, were changing for the better. And having women be more active in the workforce didn't undermine their masculinity. It, it helped all the boats rise, so to speak. Uh, there's still challenges out there, and we saw it today with uh, CBS News reported today about cadets speak out at the Air Force. A dozen cadets reported assault, and when they reported it, they were uh, faced with retribution from the command. And that's something that was really very much in our mind years ago. I was thinking before the show, why didn't I report any of the things that happened? And it was because of retribution. I was afraid of that. It was also because of resilience, though. I wanted to show that anything they slug out me, I could hit out of the park. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I did, but I certainly tried. Absolutely. Because, I mean, I can imagine dealing with the verbal and physical abuse and just the, the psychological aspect of being a woman 
it, it takes a toll on your mental frame of mind to a certain point. So uh, for you, pretty much working in such harsh environments that are both mentally and physically demanding, how did that affect your mental health and your physical health? Well, I started smoking. <laughs> started drinking a lot of coffee. I may have had too much alcohol to drink on occasion. Uh, so these, I think, are some of the typical uh, stress relievers that we turn to in those really tense environments. Um, but I also started exercising more, and I sought out people who were healthy, whether they were a chief warrant officer who had a great sense of humor or... Uh, people in the church. I did a lot of reading and mostly I worked. Mm -hmm. I started graduate school full time. I wanted to see how far I could push it. So I decided to get published internationally. And I wrote any any place I could I would write and put it in this in the newspaper, the command newsletter, anything to help forward my career but also to spread uh, spread the information. It is, according to the Veterans Affairs, they're, they've analyzed over 55 million records nationwide, starting from 1979 to 2014, and they found that uh, female veteran rates have a higher suicide of 250% comparison to non-military women. How do you feel when you hear that statistic? I believe it. I can see the stress even with the reserves that that uh, this seventeen year war is taking on everybody mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a, a rough time for us all as a country with the divisiveness that we're seeing and it's especially rough for those who are in uniform. The classic statistic of less than two percent of Americans are familiar with the military. Um, I've had people come up to me when I was in my uniform saying they'd never even heard of a female captain before. So I can understand why the female suicide rate is higher, and I encourage everyone to, to seek out help, whether it's from the church or an 800 number or your public library. Ask for help. People want to help, and it's a very enriching environment for those who do ask for the help. Do you know of any specific resources that um, military personnel can find on base or that you know, or just sort of reach out to the community? Well, on base, there's always the medical community, the chaplain community. I know that they have a veterans outreach on each of the military bases as well. Uh, any of the chaplains are trained, and the chaplain's assistants are trained mm -hmm. to, to help as well. Um, I know when I was looking for some some avenue for my expression, I typed on the Internet, I typed veterans writing, and up came a plethora of avenues to go. And I know that they have the same type of thing for art and music. There's so many different ways to express your angst that I, I encourage everyone to, to go forward and seek help. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, because I'm sure a lot of um, our listeners will would appreciate that information. What are some of the resources that you're starting to see a lot more now that are targeting women and their mental and physical health? I think something like the Athena Conference, which brings the people all together, was a 
really wonderful thing. Women working with each other to help each other as opposed to backstepping, which was more my experience from so long ago. I use writing as an outlet, and there's several uh, places where you can go for free. One of them is the Mighty Pen Project out of Richmond, Armed Services Arts Partnership based in D.C. and also uh, Williamsburg. OBX has a free uh, military veterans writing uh, every uh, the first weekend in November. So to me, writing has been a wonderful outlet. It's not therapy, but it, writing is very therapeutic. That's amazing that you're utilizing your writing and artistic skills to sort of use as an outlet. You mentioned stress. Having to balance your personal and professional and having a family of children, can you sort of recall the first deployment or the first mission that you had to go on when you first started your family? Um, well, I was active duty for seven or eight years, and then I was reservist, and the deployments were short back then. They were two weeks or three months or six months, and it was a question of how was the family going to fare. I, I always asked my husband, what did you think? And he checked with me because we were both military at the same time to see if we could plan our deployments and plan our work. Planning was really the operative word to make sure that the refrigerator had food mm -hmm. and to make sure the medical care was taken care of. We almost had a turnover folder for each child. Wow. And, but the assumption was, if Frank left, it was business as usual. If I left, then all sorts of people said, oh, let me help you, Frank. Mm -hmm. I'll take the kids Saturday afternoon, the assumption being that he wasn't able to handle it. And in fact, he did a wonderful job. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But the, there was the concern about, well, I'm gone, and are the kids really okay? One time I called from Portugal, and they were going out for pizza. And I said, oh, really? And they said, yeah, because we had a fire in the kitchen. <laughs> Because my middle boy threw his little plastic toy in the oven to see what would happen. Mm -hmm. and, and those are things <laughs> that are really hard to plan for. Right. Uh, pizza is always wonderful, but fires in kitchens. No, not so much. Not <laughs> so much, no. Wow. And when you were deploying, like, did you have like any sort of remedies? Because I know this is sort of like before the age of technology and video chatting. And um, I mean, what? kept you going while you're away from home and you know not being able to be with your children i did as much ahead of time as i could I, I usually left letters or postcards already made that frank could put under the pillows uh gifts for the halfway point um phone calls didn't work well for us because it was always the wrong time right frank was in the shower <laughs> or there was a fire in the kitchen <laughs> or we didn't know what was going on but letters worked really well and postcards did too so I tried to front load the system there and I I put it out of my mind as well which is something that many people do whether they're astronauts or firefighters mm -hmm. policemen they say okay I'm here I'm doing my job and I'm trusting that everything is okay at home because you've done the best you could before you left and it's like that whether a man or a woman mm -hmm. leaves, has to leave home for whatever reason. Right, right. Because I just want to go over some of the numbers. Because according to Military One Source, 
which is a great family support system that's ran by civilians, but specifically is catering to the military families. In 2015, they did a survey and they were stating that there were over 1 million children, over 600,000 spouses, and over 10,000 adult dependents um, that were in the care of active duty parents and caregivers. So knowing that your your children was part of the you know that statistic not specifically in 2015 but at some point being away like how do you ensure that your children are receiving the the knowledge and the the level of care because i know you said you had your you know your husband fortunately to take care of them while you're away but i mean has there ever been a point where both of y'all had been deployed and or was on a critical mission there were a few times, and we have uh, been lucky to have some wonderful family members help out, even an adopted grandmother, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, my cousin, uh, Roberta Morgan, her her mother would come, Eleanor, and she would be the grandma and mm-hmm. take care of the family. Um, one of the aspects we employed in our family was animals. You might be surprised, but if we had animals here, the children would go on because they knew that they had to take care of the pugs and they knew that they had to feed the cats because mom was gone and they had to make sure that they got fresh water. Mm -hmm. And that was a really big help for them. Um, The church family was a help as well. When the children would go to church, having a rhythm Children love schedules, and having a rhythm to the to the day, the week, the month was very reassuring for the children. Okay, Friday night we always have pizza. Sunday morning we always go to Sunday school, and they always have donuts. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you had to really be on their level, pretty much. It was difficult. The hardest part was when Frank was on a ship and he would pull in and out. It seemed easier if Frank would go off to sea for three or six months because we could say, well, dad is gone. And when he comes home for dinner, he's home mm-hmm. as opposed to him coming back for a week and then leaving and coming back. That was very hard for the children. It was almost like, well, doesn't daddy love us? Right. Daddy loves you. Daddy loves the country. Daddy has a job to do. And that's what Frank said to the children too, when I had to leave. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I, I do thank you and your family for that for that sacrifice because I know that's a very hard thing. Recently, back in 2011, President Obama and his administration had lifted the ban on the Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which was in place by the Clinton administration. And going through that time frame, when you first joined the military, a, a lot of that was not something that was openly suggested. So what is your point of view in, the, in regards to this transition of from 1979 to 2011 and, and knowing that people are able to express themselves in such a way that was once not acceptable. I think it's a natural progression. We've always had homosexuals in the military, and it was just a question of how out they could be and how the command looked at them. Typically, if they were super performers, people would turn turn aside from it. One of the first things I had to do on Guam was to out-process one of my own female sailors, for being gay. And then one of the last things I had to do was to write an award recommendation for an officer who was flamboyantly gay 
mm -hmm. he was getting out of the military. So as a young person, I saw that, mm -hmm. and I said, my up, mind my own business. <laughs> I'm just going to take care of what I can take care of. Um, and I think it's appropriate in the military that we have everyone in the society who can can meet the standards to, to let them in. I, I think as long as their mental health is and physical health is on an even keel that they should be allowed uh, to come in. And thank you for sharing that point of view because I know that a lot of people in your age group, I mean, that is still considered a taboo for them and they choose not to acknowledge or accept that fact of that there are some people that are going to live lifestyles that they don't agree oh, with. Absolutely. And I've been called Leslie more times than I've been called by my first name. Right. So, you know, if, if, if you have short hair, you don't wear makeup, you don't wear a lot of jewelry, then you're, you were gay, you know. And if you had a man one time at an event and then another time, you were loose. And if you had the same fellow, then you were getting married. It Very tight boxes they they put women in and I suppose men too mm -hmm. so I think it's good that it's opened up a little bit more now and that the whole range of sexuality is accepted right and that I mean that's really good I mean it shows progression for on the military's behalf so I want to sort of kind of go circle back to your writing because um, I know that you had prepared a couple of pieces for us to share I'd be happy to share this is a very short poem I wrote uh, quite a while ago, and it's about an experience that I had when I was uh, at Officer Candidate School, and it's called Join the Navy. Join the Navy and ride a wave, yucked a sailor from a brow. I marched toes curling from stiff shoes, mirror finish showing gray skies, calves aching from PT, kept up with the pack this time. Knees grinding from pounding concrete, just six bad steps on the grinder today. Join the Navy and ride a wave, shrilled a sailor from the catwalk. After 80 years in leathers, they're still waving. This is a piece of flash fiction, which is uh, about 150 words. Uh, it's uh, another experience that I had. I think I was uh, also an ensign at the time, a pretty fertile time in my life. And it's called Learning the Ropes. And of course it's about learning the ropes on a ship mm -hmm. so a singapore sling please the ensign said placing her dress cover tentatively on a sticky swollen counter the garage-sized officer's bar replete with shield shaped plaques and ball caps from squadrons fleet-wide smelled of sweat and swagger its haziness was in stark relief to the pearly coronado friday afternoon with only a five in her wallet she had enough for one drink you might want to move that, nodded the warrant officer in a faded pickle suit. Excuse me? He reached over the offending object for pretzels from a plastic bowl. There's plenty of room, she said. Just trying to save you some dough, he shrugged. The oversized brass bell shrieked through the chatter of the flyboys. What's that? Drinks on the ensign, proclaimed the bell ringer. She glared at the laughing warrant officer wondering how to pay for so many drinks this far from payday. Wow. <laughs> Very, I, I can definitely relate to that scenario. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's true. If you put your hat on a bar in one of the military mm -hmm. uh, facilities, they're going to say, 
drinks on you. Right, exactly. You mentioned uh, Admiral Grace Hopper. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Um, can you briefly sort of describe what she meant to you as um, an inspirational leader? How did she affect you in your career? Uh, when I was at Allegheny College, I met uh, Dr. Margaret Mead, who was a wonderful person. I'd read uh, Blackberry Summers, and it was wonderful. And when I came into the military and I heard of Grace Hopper, I thought, oh, I, I dreamed of meeting her one day. And it was a big reason why I went into the computer field. Uh, we were lucky enough when we were at Nardac for the four female lieutenants to meet her. And she had dinner with us, just four lieutenants and an admiral, which is unheard of. Uh, she challenged us to do better, to push harder, to uh, to publish, to get our PhDs. She wanted the best for us, and I'm not sure that we fulfilled her dreams for us, but it was certainly a dream of mine to have met her and wonderful to have dined with her. That is amazing. I can imagine meeting someone that you look up to and being able to sort of sit and talk with them and, and share your experiences, and but also receive some insightful information from her. And um, in a sense, it's where it's motivational for you to keep pushing. So that's, that is really cool. Thank you for that. The numbers have drastically improved in regards to recruitment for women joining the military. Um, I sort of want to get your thoughts on the visibility of women in the military. How do you see that? How did you see that transition? Well, I came in, it was about 3%, and I understand the goal now is 25%. And my saying is, we're not there if we're still counting. And until we have a cross-section of people on the Joint Chiefs of Staff and in Congress. We're, we're getting there, but we're not there. Maybe the last couple of years we've gone backwards a little bit. Uh, but I think it's become more custom now for there to be females. Whereas I would hear people grumble about, oh, she's not going to be my boss. Now quite often, not only is a woman your boss, but it's also the commandant. So as we have more uh, high power, uh, women and minorities uh, take positions of leadership, then the uh, underlings have no choice but to to toe the line, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, we we now have our first memorial in Arlington, women in military service, uh, in Arlington. And that, I think, has gone a long way to give us visibility. It's the only place in America where the different military females can get together and see stories and, and, and give homage to, to the work and the sacrifice of their sisters. You've taken your Smart Pill and you're better for it. Smart Pill is brought to you by the WHRO Emerging Leaders Board a diverse group of young professionals in their 20s and 30s who believe in the power of public media to make their voices heard. The podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Emerging Talk series, bringing critical information and important conversations to people in Hampton Roads and across the country. The podcast is produced by Keith Darrow, Louis Estrada, Truly Matthews, John Miller, and Nisha Witt, and produced in association with WHRO. Sound recording and technical assistance by Victor Bowen. Special thanks to WHRO Director of Community Engagement, Nancy Rogan, and the WHRO Marketing Department. 
On behalf of the Emerging Leaders Board, I'm your host, Nisha Wynn, and I'll talk to you again when it's time to take your smart pill.